healing the past to stop living in the past. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep into emotional recovery with Kathy Gildener. Now, Kathy is a New York Times bestselling author and a retired clinical psychologist who spent years doing the Lord's work, helping adult children heal from the past. So her most recent book was published in 2019, and it is called Good Morning Monster. A therapist shares five heroic stories of emotional recovery. And this book is about the five patients that had the biggest impact on Kathy throughout her 25-year career as a therapist. Five individuals who managed to survive horrendous childhoods, like dysfunctional ain't cutting it. These were horrendous childhoods and how their unresolved childhood pain showed up in their lives as adults. And in my opinion, this book is a beautiful example of why it's so important for an adult child to seek therapy to work through this shit, and the importance of digging up the past, shining a light on the pain of the past, and most importantly, that healing is possible. And this book illustrates what healing looks like, not in theory, but in actual practice. Now, each patient on the surface, seems vastly different. But as the layers of the onion were peeled away, Kathy could see that their unconscious needs were the same. They all needed to feel loved in order to live better lives. This book is a must-read for adult children. And in fact, now I'm going to attempt to bribe you into reading the book. Five of you are going to win a free copy of the book. Give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. Write a nice little short review. Take a screenshot and then email that to me or DM me. Now, for anyone who already submitted a review, you could get someone that you know to give it a five-star rating and that would count. Perhaps that's unethical, but honestly, I don't really care. People need to find this show and ratings does really help. And also, Kathy said that she would gladly do a book club if I were to get a group together. So if anyone is interested in doing so, hit a girl up. And now for Kathy. (laughs) Real quick, Ali. Mm. Got me breathing with dragons. I'll crack the egg in your basket, you bastard. I'm Marilyn Manson with madness. Now just imagine the magic I like to ask is don't ask for your favorite rapper. Yes, sir. Amen. Shut I killed him. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce Catherine Gildner. She is an American and a Canadian New York Times bestselling author of many books, but most notably for the purpose of our conversation here, Good Morning Monster, a therapist shares five heroic stories of emotional recovery. And she also worked as a clinical psychologist for 25 years, helping a ton of adult children, I must say. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. As I said, I have so much that I want to talk with you about. We'll definitely have to have you back because I can't get it all in in this one thing. But um, yeah, first, I just want to say thank you. You've, you've really helped uh, a lot of the 
types of listeners that people are listening. You've helped a lot of adult children and it's not easy work to do. And so when you reflect back on, you know, your career and also your books, I mean, how does that make you feel like what, what comes to mind when you just think about the work that you've done? Well, I mean, it makes me feel great. It makes me feel really, really wonderful. I'm, I also wrote some memoirs and those were um, really popular, but uh, the Good Morning Monster, it's one of those books that um, it's a, it is a bestseller, but it's not as, as big a bestseller as my memoirs. But people that really are affected by the things that I'm talking about in the book write to me all the time. I get more letters than I, I've ever gotten for anything, even though it's sold less. Because it's like, whoever it hits, it's like, oh, this is me. I've got to write to you. I got to find a therapist. I got to ask you all these questions. Uh, so, I mean, the response is, among that group has been just amazing. Yeah, no, I can totally relate, I think. And it's why I wanted to create this podcast too, because I just think it's a topic that is not being discussed enough. And like you said, it just really hits people at a guttural level when they see, you know, their experience being told yeah. by somebody else. Cause I think so many people just think that they're unique or alone or that there's something wrong with them, you know? Oh, absolutely. And some of the cases in the book are very traumatic. Like they're, they're heavy duty cases. And um, I used to write about lighter cases for magazines and things like that. So I wrote about heavy duty cases and I, I do a number of book groups. I always have done a lot of book groups and they say, oh, Kathy, we just can't relate to this. It's too terrible. We can't read it. We can't finish it. It's too upsetting. And then people write to me and say, this happened to me only. I got to tell you in what way it was worse. Mm. Right. So it's, you know, so like the people that haven't had that life at, at all just think that it, it, they can't read it. It's too upsetting. And those that have had that life are like, oh, yeah, yeah, hers is easier than mine. But I totally related for the first time because, you know, this all happened to me. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I do want to talk more about the book, but first I want to talk a little bit about you. So wow. you have quite, you had quite an upbringing yourself. You know, the one thing that you and I have in common is so. I got kicked out of, um, it wasn't a Catholic school, but it was a, a private Episcopalian school at 13. So partially wow, related. We're, we're absolutely in the same path. Yeah. So you were 12, right? When you got kicked out of a Catholic <laughs> school. So, I mean, I guess I should say I wasn't kicked out. I was just, it was strongly suggested that I don't return. So basically the same thing. <laughs> my, father, my father was a pharmacist and they said that I had, I was kicked out of the school. And then my father said, then that's the end of free drugs for you right? For all the content, which he was supplying. So that let me stay. But I mean, it was, it was a total bribe, right? They really did want to get rid of me. I'd love to have a, uh, just have a zoom with all the people that were kicked out of, of religious schools before grade eight. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a really select group. Yeah. 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 Well, I get, so I got kicked out that seventh grade and then eighth grade, I went to public school, but then that was the, for, that was the year I got sent to rehab for the first time. So things just like, you know, we're just on the up and up ever after that, you know, well, that's young, that's young. <laughs> it was young. Yeah. So tell me, you know, you, you had quite an interesting upbringing even prior to that. So I know I've read that when you wrote your memoirs, that so many of your friends were saying, you have all these funny stories, you need to put them down on paper. And that when you initially wrote the first chapter and sent it off to, to book agents, that you didn't think that it was anything like out of the ordinary. So I was just hoping that you could maybe provide a little context there. Well, I, I thought that I had a normal life. Everyone thinks their life is normal, right? Every single person thinks their life is normal. I mean, it may be an unhappy life, 
but you say, oh, I think everybody else pretty well goes through this because what else is there to do? This is what life is, right? But I was from a family that was actually quite happy, right? I mean, they were happy and well-adjusted and, you know, no alcohol, no, no abuse. I was the weirdo. I was the one <laughs> who was hyperactive, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I climbed trees and they had to call the fire department to get me down. And, and then I did the same thing the next day and then it went on and on. So then they took me to a pediatrician who said, um, okay, because I was jumping off his table and taking his, you know, tongue depressors and throwing them around. <laughs> and I, I was like about four. So he said, no, she has to work. This is the 1950s. This is before I, there was no such thing as ADD. And there was no such thing as a girl being hyperactive. That was not heard of, right? So he said, um, she's got to work. She's got to work full time. Yeah, because she's, she's got to burn off that energy before she goes to school. It wasn't a bad idea. So I went to work with my father who owned a drugstore at six in the morning, went home at 10 at night. And then, you know, I was fairly quiet in school, right? And the, but the, the whole book is about the delivery car driver who was black. And mm -hmm. we, he and I drove around giving drugs to everyone in the Niagara frontier. And it was kind of like what life was with you know, the black restaurants and what white life was like in the white restaurants and from the point of view of a five-year-old. Mm -hmm. So it seemed to have caught on. People really liked it. Yeah. But, but um, in terms of, uh, I mean, my husband now says to me, you don't think your family was weird? Like, I, you know, my, my mother never, I know, my, my mother never made a meal ever once, right? So we ate in restaurants, right? But it didn't strike me as odd, right? It, I mean, I just thought, okay, time to get ready to go and eat. And it, it didn't seem, you know, nobody complained about it. So there was no strife. I grew in, up in a home with no strife. But as, as my husband said, it was incredibly weird. Right. But I, but I didn't get that. Right. I think that weird's good. I like weird. Yeah. Well, as long as everybody, as long as everybody normalizes it for you, you know, like my father, my mother said, I don't cook now or ever. And so my father said, Oh, okay, well, I guess we'll have to go out. Like he, there was no, it was, it all made, it was all normalized, you know, wow. where I found out that that doesn't happen. If the wife says I'm not cooking, husbands usually say what the hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You are cooking. Yeah. <laughs> Get in the kitchen, keep your mouth shut. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so then, so, so you start working at, at nine and you did, you were behaving well in school, but then I'm assuming, you know, you started drinking at 12 because it wasn't that part of the reason that you got kicked out. So what kind of happened around then? Oh, no, I never drank. Didn't drink oh. ever until I was like 35 or oh, 40. Wow. And I've never had been, a, I had a drinking or, or an, uh, any kind of substance abuse problem. It's always just been a bad temper and hyperactivity. Interesting. Well, that's so yeah. weird because I thought I read online that it said that you got kicked out for bringing a flask full of vodka to school. It says oh, that oh, oh, that thing. Oh yeah. That was, uh, that was what my, my, my girlfriend, uh, who was very wild said we had, it, the priest was an alcoholic and she said, we have to bring vodka and put it in the holy water. And then uh, when he goes to, you know, uh, bless himself, he's going to taste that vodka. We've got to leave it all there. And I said, nobody do that. I mean, so what? It's just vodka. Like, that, you know, she said, believe me, I know. I know what I'm doing. So we did it. And of course, and yeah, I know. And then he got drunk. He's from Ireland. And he started screaming about how much he hated the English. It was all hilarious. But I, I really got into massive trouble for that. I forgot about that. Yeah. And, you know, she must have known alcoholics because she knew. Clearly, people, clearly. Yeah, he got a taste of that alcohol because I thought, so what? Right. But, you know, yeah, no, he couldn't help himself. 
Yeah, That's good memory. For coming up with that. All right. <laughs> um, so, so then when did you decide that you wanted to uh, study psychology and become a therapist? Well, you know, Roy, who was a delivery car driver, always, I always said, because it was, it's actually very interesting to be a delivery car driver for a drugstore at the age of four, like until 12, <laughs> no, right? because it's, because it's totally um, egalitarian. You know, I mean, you deliver, everybody needs antibiotics, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, right? So we used to deliver to really poor people and really, really rich people. This is back when everyone got their, their drugs delivered. You didn't go to the drugstore that much. You know, they, everyone got delivered. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was, that was the whole thing. Like your dry cleaning got delivered, your groceries, the milk, everything got delivered in the fifties, you know? Were you delivering quaaludes then? Quaaludes? Truckloads of Valium, truckloads of Valium for all those women in all those Irish Catholics in the 50s. Mother's little helpers. (laughs) Yeah. And that that didn't believe in birth control and had eight kids and were expecting their ninth. They just took, you know, Valium and lay down on the couch. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, what, what, what was, it was interesting about that was that I, I noticed there were, there was all kinds of differences in, uh, in, in different cultures. Right. And we also delivered to prostitutes. We delivered to all the prostitutes of Niagara Falls, Lewiston, Niagara frontier, because yeah, they get infections, they need antibiotics. So we would go there. And, uh, and so you get to know people, you know, you deliver there twice a week, you get to know people. And I always said to Roy, I wonder why these women are so nice. And they got into this, like, how did that happen? Like, I was interested in psychology from the get go, like, how could this person become a a doctor and this person become a prostitute, and they both seem equally smart and nice? Like, how did this happen? Right? So I've always, I've always been interested in, in psychology. Yeah. yeah, me too. I'm just, I'm just a curious person by nature too. So, yeah. and I like, we'll talk to anybody. Um, yeah. that's so interesting. Um, where were you delivering to the prostitutes? Was there like brothels or like you were like going to their houses? Well, all, all, everything, you know, above stores, some of them are very uh, elegant and, and, you know, downtown Buffalo mansions and some are, you know, above a store in a one room place. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, you know, it was interesting. And some of them let you into their lives. Like, you know, they would say, oh, come on in, have a Diet Coke, you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, I got to sort of see what that, I got to see all different kinds of lives. I got to see the black existence. I got to see the prostitutes. I got to see the rich DuPonts of DuPont Nylon and Hooker Chemical and, you know, all of those big wigs, uh, you know. And so I saw all classes and I don't think that most kids, get the chance to do that. If you're rich, you, li- you only see rich people. And if you're poor, you only see poor people. So I, I mean, I think it made a huge difference for me to see everybody. Do you think in any way it messed up your kind of like the growing up process at all? Cause it kind of, you know, it's kind of adulty, right? Do you think that there, do you feel like you skipped any phases of development at all? Or, or if there was any of a ne- negative impact of doing that? You know what? I, it's so interesting that you ask that because I'm actually just going through that now. I know at 73, I'm going through that. Um, I mean, what happened was uh, I was never disciplined. You know, I mean, my, I was an only child of older parents. My father popped his head in the door and said, it's five o'clock. We got to get going. We got to get the ice off the garage, you know, and then I'd have all of my work to do. And I thought I was very witty. So I would try to be funny at the store and all that. But when I did something bad and he would just say, you know, what are you doing? Like he treated me as a friend. 
Like he never said you're punished or, or anything like that. He'd say, oh, that's ridiculous. And my mother would always, when I did bad things, say I have a headache and have to lie down, right? So, I mean, nobody ever said I was bad, right? So when I grew up, I had a huge amount of self-confidence. You know, I was arrested by the FBI, but that's another, that's in, that's in the second volume, right? Yeah, I can't but wait. I, yeah, but you know, I, I, I didn't have any sense that, uh, I had, had a great sense of self. However, when I had my own three children, I didn't know how to discipline. Mm. I didn't know how to say, okay, you're, you did that. You're not going out this weekend. You did that. And you are not going to have a treat or I didn't know any of those things. And so it only caught up with me when I had my own children, because otherwise I just worked around it, you know? And so then how has it been? Obviously feel free to not to respond, but how is it showing up for you now? You said you're kind of dealing with that now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I didn't, I don't think I disciplined my children in the way that you're supposed to. So they got wild, you know, and, uh, and, you know, so then it's, it, all these things come home to roost. And my husband, uh, he, he was uh, the eldest of immigrant family and nobody disciplined him because he had to be the parent because they didn't, no one spoke English, but him. So uh, both of us were like the good, never got in, never got disciplined. So we had no idea once we had children, how to get that rolling. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's when it caught up to me and not in any way during my life, my, I mean, my youth or my marriage or whatever, because you could just say, look, this is who I am. If you don't like it, get out. Right. Or not, not, you know, something like that, but you can't do that when you're in a family and you're saying, oh, this isn't going right, but I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Mm -hmm. So when you, so then you study psychology, were you required to have any therapy yourself uh, throughout that process? Everybody is. I mean, I don't know what they do now. Um, it used to be more rigorous. You know, you, you had to do a computer language. You had to do a regular language. You know, you had to do all of this stuff. And uh, yeah, you had to have therapy and it had to be by an approved therapist of that, of the department and, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And I mean, cause I mean, part of the, what they have to do is decide if you're, you know, if you're intellectually capable of being a therapist and B, if you're um, mentally together enough because sometimes people can be really bright but not mentally together mm-hmm. right yeah, so I, I mean <laughs> yeah I can relate yeah so was there anything that you learned about yourself throughout that process while you were in school and in therapy were there any like aha moments that you had yeah yeah you know I mean you learn about family dynamics right I mean if you go I was in psychoanalysis for five years back when psychoanalysis was you know the de rigueur therapy Um, and, uh, yeah, you learn all kinds of things about yourself. You know, you learn, wow, my mother should have figured out, um, discipline. Like maybe that was her job. Maybe it wasn't that I was unable to be disciplined. You know, they, they confront you with this kind of thing. Right. And you're like, oh yeah, maybe she wanted to be alone. Maybe she didn't want to be a parent for, you know, maybe she just thought, well, this is too much. I I don't know how to do this. I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting, sending her away. I didn't feel that way at the time. I felt I enjoyed working. I loved it. I, I didn't, I wasn't angry, but the, you know, the therapist then presents a whole different scenario that, you know, maybe this isn't all your issue. Maybe this was a family issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then how do you, well, we'll talk about when we get to the book, I guess we'll talk about it. Let's talk about the book. So how did you, when did you decide that you wanted to write Good Morning Monster? And when you picked the clients, your former patients, was that something that was very clear to you or was it hard for you to pick who you wanted to write about? Well, I wanted to be very scientific. 
you know, I wanted to say, okay, I'm going to pick, I, first of all, it, this is an incredibly ethnic city, right? There's more Indians than it's, than, uh, I mean, um, East Indians, there's natives. It's a hugely uh, multi-racial uh, society in Toronto. So I wanted to present that, I, I, you know, so, the, but that was easy to do. But I, what I did was I came up with the first five people and I put it on a piece of paper. Those are the people that I thought of first. And then I went through this whole thing of making a three by five card on every patient I've ever seen and trying to organize it. And, you know, which, you know what I mean? Trying to be scientific and blah, 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 and represent this and this and this. And then in the end, I did the five that I picked in the first five minutes. Wow. Right. But I mean, I think it was because I had the, I, uh, I was attached to them mostly, you know, the, the, for some reason I was attached to them. You know, um, yeah. Now it, it's interesting because the editor, you talk about aha moments, right? My editor at Penguin for, um, yeah, for this book, um, my editor at Penguin said, Kathy, did you notice that all of the females here are, are uh, motherless and that they are all uh, taken care of by their father? Because that's very rare, right? I said, no, no, no. She said, yeah, everyone. And I thought, wow, that was me, right? So I thought, oh, un unconsciously, I picked people who in some way lived my life. Mm -hmm. In some way we were, you know, then I started reading all the differences. Actually, I was thinking of writing an appendix in the book, but, or, or a, uh, another book, but, you know, they, they've done studies on girls that were raised by um, both parents. They've done studies that were, people were raised just by their mother and some that were raised just by their father. And girls that are raised by their father are very different. You know, they have, uh, they're more effectual. They get more done in a day. They're less empathetic. Um, they're more male-like. They have more rough and tumble play. You know, so they're, they're actually a bit more, um, and they're more, more cynical. They're, they've had to grow up faster. Um, so, you know, I mean, you can imagine where if I said to my father, oh, I've just come to this house and this man's dying. He can't even take his medication. And my father would say, look, we have to deliver four things before these guys have a heart attack. You just have to leave it and call, you know, I'll call social services. You've got to get out. Where if, you know, you call a woman, she'd say, oh, my God. Oh, what can we do? Oh, my God. So if you're raised by a father, you are, you know, you, you're much more um, task oriented. Right. And, and less empathetic. So I think I identified with all of those, the women in the cases, because that's we saw things in, in the same light, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize it at all at the time until the editor pointed it out. And I went, Oh my God. Right. That's fascinating. Cause I mean, what it's less, yeah, it's less than 1% of the population that's raised by a father. Right. And I came up with four of them. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did you, you just, you had, must've had such extensive notes on all of them. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I did. I did. But, you know, it was, I had to re redo the dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really surprised by how much I remembered um, because they, each one of them made such a strong impression yeah. on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, when you look at uh, the native Danny, um, this goes back, I mean, you have to realize we didn't know what residential school was. We didn't know natives were sent away to some school, you know, so when he came to therapy, he described the school he had been to and the horror and everything that happened, but it had been not been in the news yet. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh my God, you know, then I would see like one native after another and they'd all been through the same thing. So it was, it was so shocking that this, you know, that white people went in and 
took these kids and put them and locked them away and left them there till they were 18 and sexually abused them and beat them and that a third of them died. It was like, how could we as white people not know this in 1980? Mm-hmm. You know, wow. but I mean, it, it all it all came out later. But I mean, I think I remember the dialogue so clearly is, is because it was so shocking to me. And, and, you know, whenever things are traumatic, you remember them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, the first your first ever patient, you call her Laura in the book. I mean, that yeah. that is just such a, a fascinating and amazing story. Um, and so obviously the part that was really hit for me was when she realized that she was an adult child of an alcoholic. So, so when, when did you become from, when did you learn about this term? Adult child of an alcoholic. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had a friend who was very active in adult children of alcoholics movement. And so um, she would tell, would tell me about it. And I'd say, oh, because everyone knows about AA, right? But in the 80s, people didn't know about all these other groups, right? Mm-hmm. And she would say, yeah, you know, I'm learning that I don't have to be responsible for everybody and everything all the time. You know, it, it's because of my alcoholic parents, I felt I had to always be responsible. And it was great to be in a room with everyone who said, you know, if something went wrong, whose fault is it? And then everybody raised their hand. It's definitely my fault. Mm. I mean, you know, so, I mean, when you're not parented adequately and you're not ready to take over, it's, and you're not ready to be an adult, it's pretty terrifying. So you develop all these coping skills. And she was telling me all about this. And I thought, wow, because it's very much uh, described, very much described Laura, you know? So I thought, wow, you know, aside from a therapy and what happened to her, she's got every single feature, all 13 of them, they're listed, it, she's got all of those features. And so do so many uh, children of, of alcoholics or dysfunctional families. Exactly. Yeah, the first and time I read a list. Girl. She what? And she's the eldest girl. Often it hits the eldest girl. because They're the, they're the, uh, the, the parent. Well, I was the only child, so yes. <laughs> oh, so we're yes. both only children. Yes, we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when you read the, what did you think? When I read that, when I, well, I mean, I loved it, but when I, so when I read the, the, the laundry list traits for the first time, it was just, it was a spiritual experience. It was insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You suddenly realize, oh, oh my God, I'm a sociological artifact. I'm not crazy. This happens to exactly. everybody who grew up exactly this way. And it's so shocking. Yeah. But it's also so relieving, yeah. right? Because like, I couldn't yeah. figure out like what fuck was wrong with me, you know? It, normal- it normalizes your life. You're saying, oh, okay. So you had, I know you were, you had addiction issues. What yeah. about your parents? My mom was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. So mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I never thought, um, oh, I'm, you know, I think some kids are like, I'm never going to drink. Because if, you know, some kids never touch it because of their parents. But for me, it was, I'm just not going to be like my mom. But of course, as it often happens, I mean, my, my disease was rapid progression. But at the same time, what I think is so interesting is that I think that my first kind of cry for help to save the family was showed up in my separation anxiety. So I like developed very strong separation anxiety with my mom. That didn't really fix anything. My parents were still fighting and my mom was still drinking. Were you school phobic? No. No, you went to school. Okay. Yeah. 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 It was, some, people won't, some people won't leave that alcoholic mom. They won't go to school. I've seen some of those. I couldn't, I couldn't spend the night away from home. 
And then at a certain point it started where I could fall asleep in my own bed, but in the middle of the night, I would wake up and I would go and switch positions with my dad. And that went on for about a like a couple of years. And then of course, that's when they sent me to therapy. And then years later, when I asked if they had told the therapist that my mom was an alcoholic and they fought all the time, of course not. <laughs> yeah, no, there's just something wrong with you. Yeah. 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 Um, but when I started to drink and act out and get into trouble at school, that's what fixed the family. My mom stopped drinking as much. My parents stopped fighting as much because they had to come together to deal with me, you know? So, wow. So you are, do you think you unconsciously did that? Like it's to say, Oh, by the way, if you think this family's okay, look at me. I mean, not consciously, not consciously. No, I think, I think, well, I think part of it is that like, I'm clearly an alcoholic, <laughs> you know, like, I have it in my genes. I think part of it was, yeah, like the pain I was feeling, trying to escape the the pain and the trauma and what I was experiencing at home. And yeah, I do think another part of it was probably a cry for help or an attempt to fix the family. I mean, I think it's all intertwined. And it's a way to get your mom to uh, sort of flush out her alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Because the first thing that any doctor asks is, is there anybody in the family who's an alcoholic once the kid is? Yeah, well, I don't think that happened. Um, yeah, but it's just, um, it just goes to show though, that, you know, we know that the alcohol and the drugs is only the symptom. Right. But, um, Mm -hmm. I think it goes to show just how I hit such a horrible bottom with nine years of sobriety, like related to, to this stuff. I mean, I'd already done, I've worked the steps. I'd done so much work, but I think it just goes to show how truly how much the alcohol and the drugs was merely just a symptom, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. How long would it take you to get sober? Well, I mean, so I got sent to treatment for the first time when I was 14 and I was from that age, from like 13 to 19, I was just in and out of like rehabs and boarding schools and stuff like that. Right. Because I became the identified patient in the family. Um, mm-hmm. but, I, by, but by 16, I was a daily drinker. And by 17, I was drinking around the clock. So, um, I got sober at 19 I would say that I never really, I don't think any of the other times like really counted for like trying to be sober. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like I was having these relapses or anything. I was just being forced into these programs. Um, But for me, I mean, the big reason that I was able to get sober so young was because of the severe personality change I had when I drank. Like I was completely incapable of having any sort of relationship with anybody because I just become like a hot ass mess, like a shit show when I drink. So it was like angry, angry? just like kind of sloppy and loud and obnoxious causing scenes, not necessarily, not like violent or angry, but just, just like a real, real mess. Just someone you don't want to be near. So, I mean, yeah. It was like, I was like the, you know, sitting at senior of high school, just like sitting at home alone, like drinking, you know, in my room. Um, so I'm grateful though, that I got that so fast, you know, and you still go. Yeah, I do. It only works if you work it. It does, but it's interesting. Cause what started to happen was initially I was afraid that when I got sober, like, what if the alcohol wasn't the problem? Like, what if I'm just somebody that people don't like? Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that didn't turn out to be the case, right? Like I learned how to be a friend and, but then what happened was as my adult child syndrome progressed, 
while I was in sobriety and I became sicker, people started like, it started happening to me again. You know, like people did not want to be around me because I was like an emotional vampire, you know, and just like toxic. And, and I just remember like having this thought, oh my God, I'm becoming that girl again. Like I'm becoming the girl that no one wants to be friends with. But without the alcohol. Yes. Yeah. And that was like, so scary to me. Um, but I, and I didn't know what was happening. And then thank God I finally figured out, you know, what was going on with me and I could, you know, I started getting help for that, but yeah, it was, um, I just, I have a very clear memory of just being in the car and I don't know what happened. I had like a friend, another friend just kind of like disappear or ghost me or something. And just being like, holy shit, like I'm becoming that girl again. And that was Mm -hmm. so scary. I remember thinking maybe alcohol wasn't the problem. Mm -hmm. And people forget that when you grow up in an alcoholic family, there's that syndrome. There's that, uh, you know, the eldest, particularly the eldest and only child, right? I mean, there's no sisters and brothers you can bond to who say, don't worry, they're crazy, right? They're drunk. Don't worry. You know, there's nobody to do that for you, right? So, you know, you take this, this, all of it on full, full tilt. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about Laura? Like, I just think that her, I'm, I'm hoping everyone's going to go and buy and read the book and everything, but I just think that her, you don't even have to give her a whole like story, but so just kind of like your journey with her. I mean, it was pretty just miraculous, the transformation that occurred, you know, with her and such a beautiful story. Well, it, I mean, it was over five and a half years. So, I mean, we didn't have, you know, the transitions were very tiny. You know, like people keep saying, when's something going to happen here? Well, you know, like it was each week was just a tiny, tiny transition. But well, I think I mean, that's so important for people to hear, you know, right? and that's what yeah. I try to yeah. emphasize it. Just sorry to interrupt you. But so I had a, I had a woman oh. tell me like, it's going to take you years to work through this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and I'm like, I don't have years, lady. Like <laughs> I'm like almost 30. I need to have this fixed in a few months, but it does take years, but I did start to see shifts. Like, you know, it, it's yeah. not like you go from yeah. like all to nothing. Like you do see transformation along the way. So That's sorry, right. go ahead. No, I mean, I mean, one of her first transformation, well, first of all, as a child, the most traumatic thing that ha- her mother died uh, under suspicious circumstances. She was just found dead at noon one day in her bed. And uh, so the father was out drinking or something. And so she had to call 911. She had to deal with it all with the two younger siblings, right? And the mother was taken away. And then uh, the father got into some kind of trouble, had to go to jail. Then he got out and went way up north in Canada to a cabin. And uh, and in, in the summer, there's there is tourists. So they sold French fries at a French fry truck. And then he said he was going for cigarettes one day and never came back. So uh, that was traumatic for her. Um, although she never, never once said it was traumatic. She said, I could, it wasn't so bad. I mean, I could handle it. I mean, I handled it. It was okay. You know, my father knew I could handle it. I said, you were eight. Your sister was seven and your brother was five. Right? And she managed for eight months, you know, by stealing food, bringing it home, getting on, you know, buying, you know, every Sunday stealing new clothes because they didn't have a washer or dryer. She managed every single thing. And here's how resilient she was. She didn't, have, but then what happened was, I mean, she made, she managed everything physical uh, for sure. Um, but then emotionally the, the sisters started crying all the time. 
the brother began bedwetting, you know, ter- you know, emotional trauma from the other two. And so she thought, I don't know what to do. I, I, I don't, you know, like she had no idea. How, she knew how to take care of things physically, but she had no idea what to do emotionally. So one day she was watching TV. This is what I call resilience. She's watching television. There's only two channels they get, World of Disney and, um, oh my God, what's that other show? Uh, MASH. MASH, it had, I don't, you're too young to remember MASH. I know, I know was, what that. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh, and, and uh, there was a, a Colonel, Colonel, uh, Colonel Potter on MASH who helps a young guy every week because he's frightened of the bombs and he's frightened of this. He goes, don't worry, we'll all be home by Christmas. You're doing the right thing. Remember, everyone loves you. He, he was just a really wonderful, kind man. So she just reached into the TV and said, I'm going to make him my father. I am going to do every single thing he says. In every situation, I'm going to say, what would Colonel Potter do? So when her brother wet the bed, he just said, that's okay. That's okay. You're a little boy. Things happen. You'll, you'll be all right. And with the sister, she used to say to the sister, if you cry one more time, I'm going to belt you, right? But then she would say, okay, I understand. You're frightened. You know, she just did all of these things that she thought Colonel Potter would do. And she did it the rest of her life. And then she, but then what happened? Did he, what did he get in trouble for again? The real, the actor. <laughs> the actor, he got in trouble for wife battering. Yeah. Uh, I know, I know she sent it to me and she said, I really know how to pick him. I mean, cause even, you know, it was just ludicrous that that, that had happened to the actor. But, uh, you know, then she, she actually had quite good self-esteem. I mean, she had a father who never yelled at her. You know, he, he, every, when he would drink away the check, she would walk down to the bar and say, you know, take that, take, give me that work, the money from work, you're not using it. And he'd say, oh, good thing you're here. You know, he never, uh, he never yelled at her. So uh, when you, and she loved him, you know, and she, and, and whenever I said, but he abandoned you, she always said, he didn't, he knew I could handle things, you know, so it took, so of course, when you don't acknowledge your stuff, you know, your, your underlying trauma, what do you do? You repeat it, right? So she constantly found boyfriends that were just like her father. I don't know how she found them, right? I can't um, relate at all. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> she would find these awful boyfriends, you know, drug dealer or, you know, he's selling high-end cocaine, but he's not going to do it for long. You know, blah, blah, blah. Good old Ed. Good old Ed. Uh, yeah, good old Ed. And then she would always say how, you know, Ed was really a kind guy, et cetera. And I, so, but as we went through the therapy and as she began to see her father as more irresponsible, I said, you can always bond to your father. You're very bonded to him, but it doesn't mean that you have to love him in the way you would want another. He's not the archetypal perfect man. I mean, you know, so finally she, she began meeting other responsible men, but she didn't like them either for a lot, for at least a year, we had to work on it. Like she'd say, Oh, you know, you gave me one rose for, for Valentine's day. What's that about? That's so cheap. That's so freaking cheap. And I would say, well, he owns three homes in a university town and he's only 21 and he's budgeting his money and he's <laughs> learning how to do that. And she said, well, Ed would have bought me everything, you know, blah, blah. I said, yeah, but Ed would have probably stolen it. Right. And your father bought all kinds of things for his, his uh, second wife, you know, before he murdered her. Right. So, I mean, you're, you're looking at, you, you have a fantasy of what, a male is it's not a fantasy she i mean it, she saw her father and what he was so she thought that's what a male is because she she mistook bonding for love 
Mm. She was bonded to him. And so she thought she loved him. And then all other men that she, and then her whole goal in life became, I have to take these loser guys and absolutely uh, straighten them out. Trauma bonding. Mm. Mm-hmm. How old was yeah. she when she first started working with you? Oh, I'll bet she was younger than I remember. Cause we were both young. Um, she was oh. my first patient. She was my first patient. So I think she's probably about 24. Yeah. And she was going to college at night, you know, um, course by course, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and then eventually she married a, a really fantastic guy. And, you know, but it, it, as she said, uh, you know, the, I mean, the irony was that she saw Ed, her hit bad boyfriend, um, her, she married a guy who started his own company and became incredibly successful. Yep. And then they were, they were at the Royal Alex, big, huge theater in Toronto. And he was outside panhandling. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, really shocking to her when she saw him and she thought, Oh my God, if I hadn't had therapy, I could have been next to him. Right. Yeah. It was very Did shocking talk to him. No, she's, they all had to line up for pictures because her husband was the big deal and he was providing this charity event. So she, after the picture, she looked again and he was gone. Wow. I wonder if he saw her. Probably not. I I would imagine he did because they were the sort of celebrities there. Yeah. But I mean, isn't that shocking that, you know, because she said, I always thought he'd straighten out. You know, I, you know, he went from car salesman to use car salesman to Coke salesman with the car, you know, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't, it wasn't going to go well. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she, I mean, she, she eventually, she did very well, but she was a very tough nut to crack. Oh, I you know. know. When I said, when she said to you in the beginning, um, what did she say that basically she didn't want you to call her out on anything. I can't remember how she spe- like what she specifically said. I said, wow, it sounds really hard having to take care of oh, your mother's you to show any empathy to you. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, don't ever do that. If you ever do that again, I'm going to leave this therapy. I'm not going to stay around for this kind of stuff. She said, uh, you know, I, she said, and then basically later she said, I thought I was glued together and I just, it was held together with crazy glue. And I was afraid I was going to fall apart. If I, if, if one empathetic, if someone said something empathetic to me, I would collapse because, you know, she she thought she didn't want that, but then when she would hear something empathetic, she'd be overwhelmed. As a therapist, how do you gauge, like, how did you know? I mean, you talk about a lot in the book about how, you know, you can't, you can't point anything out to the patient before, you know, that they have to kind of come to it themselves. Can you talk about that some? Yeah, that's the art of therapy. And when I first started therapy, uh, started as a therapist, that's one of the things that I wasn't quite aware of that in fact, there's an art to therapy as well as knowledge. And, and you have to, uh, I mean, you may have some theoretical background, but what is most important is to realize what's wrong with the person. But that's only the first step. The, set, the important part is getting them to realize it without you telling them. You know, so in other words, like how do you lead someone there? And they go, oh my God, you won't believe this. Right. But if I said to her, hey, you know, you're bonded to your father and you, you know, and you think you love him. Right. Da, da, da. If she's not ready to hear that, like if her, her, if she's got too many defenses, she won't hear that. And then therapy will fail. So you have to you have to put in way more time and energy until all of those defenses. You have to figure out that exact moment when people are willing to hear. And how do you figure that out? 
Well, it's very hard to do, especially when I'm a type A, right? Um, I don't know if you read the last case, Madeline, mm-hmm. um, but I made that mistake even in my last case. So I've been in there for 25 years. And I said, I know why you're doing this. I said, because you were, you know, because you love blah, blah, blah. And you're afraid he's going to be killed in an airplane. So you won't let anyone in the company go on an airplane. And she said, and she wasn't ready to hear it. She said, and remember, she said, get out. Your check is in the mail, right? Because I was at her office, but she wasn't ready to hear it. Um, and then she called me back and we, we went again. But it was my fault because I was, uh, I was, as of five years, I was losing patience. And I, I thought, oh, you know, she can handle this. And in fact, she couldn't. If she could, she wouldn't have defended against it and almost lost her business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very much my style. Like with when I sponsor other girls or work with them is I'm, I'm super direct, you know, like, so, but I, I think I call myself kind of like, um, I'm kind of like a motivational roaster. Like <laughs> I like, I like lift you up, but like simultaneously roast you, but also roasting myself at the same time. So it works. Um, can you talk so, uh, about what's the difference? Between, let me ask you a question. What's the difference between a sponsor and a therapist? Because I have a number of patients who were in AA and they always would say, well, my sponsor said, and it was always right on advice. So, I mean, how is it different? Do you have to wait to? No, I mean, anybody can be a sponsor, right? I mean, there's no set rules, right? Like some people, like for me, I didn't raise my hand to sponsor until I had one year sober. But other people will say like, if you have one more day than the, the other person, then you can be their sponsor. I had a patient who was terribly frightened to go to AA, just terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, I, and he didn't have anybody. He was all alone in the world. And I said, I would go with him. So I went with him for six weeks. Um, and it was it, it, totally eye-opening for me. And I began immediately referring people. Like I, I would not see any alcoholics who would say, hi, I'm calling you because I drink too much. I'd say, uh, six weeks, AA, 60, six, or 60, 60 meetings, 60 days, then call me and we'll start therapy. But you need to do this first, right? Because it, it's really the therapy of choice is, 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 is AA, is, is the 12 step. Um, and I was, you know, amazed to see how well it worked. Yeah. It is. And it's not for everyone. And I don't, I'm not trying to say that it, it will work for everyone, but I think it's what's worked the most for anybody. A lot of people have an issue with the whole higher power thing, but like, it doesn't even, you don't really have to believe in anything. You know what I mean? Like just people believe in yourself. Exactly. And when people, whenever I hear kind of like the, the higher power, like, I don't want to go in, you know, cause of the God stuff. It's like, do you realize how many people had those issues when they walked in? It's like when people are finally ready to get sober, like that shit doesn't matter. And, and, and people are terrified to go and they use that God thing as, as an excuse. So what I say to my patients who didn't want to go, I'd say, I'm not doing therapy until you've done this, because this is, you know, first of all, therapy costs a lot of money. And I said, you know what, 60 meetings in 60 days, it's free, you're going to get a lot out of it. And then we're going to, we're going to be able to go from there. Right. But I, I think they all brought up the God thing, you know, and the thing is, is they were, t- I mean, think how it's, first of all, it's embarrassing to be an alcoholic and having to tell a whole group of people that you're an alcoholic. You don't imagine that everybody else there is the same. You just imagine saying that to a group of people and it's profoundly humiliating. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not when you go there and everybody else is, they go, oh yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so grateful that I, it's like, I'm, I'm proud of it now. You know, like I don't, I don't even people, I don't know, like if it just, I'm pretty open about it. Um, yeah. I think it's what yeah. makes me, me, you know, it makes me, like we said, like mm-hmm. weird is weird is good. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I yeah. think it's good though, because, you know, you're really not going to be able to, this is my experience. Like you're not really going to be able to dive into this deeper family shit until mm-hmm. you get that first, until you get some physical sobriety, you have to take them as yeah. they kill you. And, you know, I think yeah. that even having like a year or more of sobriety is really what will be best just before you really start digging into this stuff. Cause the family shit, like that's, that's the, that's like the real stuff, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, that when you, when you talk about um, sobriety, people will say, well, I've been sober for two weeks and then they want to dig into their family stuff. I go, no, you're in a very precarious state. You're, you know, you're, you're, you need a, a whole year at least to, or at least uh, two months to, um, to adjust to not having alcohol in your system. I mean, that's a huge adjustment, right? You can't start in with your family at that point. You know, it's just one day at a time, right? Exactly. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I just think the relationships that you've built with your patients is so amazing. I think it's so amazing that you went to AA with that patient for however long, six weeks. That's so cool. But you talk about it with Laura, just kind of about, um, kind of like reparenting her and kind of being the mother that she never had. Mm-hmm. Can you just kind of talk about how that, the process of doing that and, and why that's important for you know, an adult child? Well, there's going to be some really disturbed relationship with, with adult children. You know, if it's sometimes the father's an alcoholic and they're close to the mother, but very often the mother is, if it's the father, the mother is a martyr, you know, to the husband, to the husband and every, all every, the whole family functions around his alcoholism, you know, all of that stuff. Right. And if it's the mother who's an alcoholic, you don't, you're motherless because you know, that their, their primary goal is drinking, right. It's not parenting. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, you need to be reparented. You need to be able to like, for example, when she said, um, uh, she, uh, Laura said, you know, my biggest regret in life is that I was a bad parent to my brother and sister. And I said, you were eight years old. Right. And she said, no, I know, but my, I, I, I was old enough to know better. I mean, my dad, my dad knew I was old enough. So he said to her, basically, you know, you can do this. So then what happened when both of the children grew up and had terrible problems, right? And she blamed, she blamed herself. And I said, I am taking you to a grade four class so that you can see what eight-year-olds are like. And you can tell me if you could handle all this in the woods for eight months, right? So I took her and, you know, there's, they're little tiny girls and little tights and little jumpers. And I said, um, this is what an eight-year-old is. So we got in the car and she was completely quiet. And I said, well, what did you think? And she said, they were immature. <laughs> so she still had the defense she still thought for some reason that those girls were younger than I you know so I said no you just don't remember what it was to be eight you thought you were like 18 and you just thought I'm failing at this you you didn't you know people put expectations on children and children can often meet them but then it takes a huge toll on you later I love the way that you walked her through her new relationship I mean she's I'm assuming they're still married right still married yeah yeah she really disliked him at first 
Well, I mean, she disliked him because he said things like, oh, come on, I'll help, or I'll help you with the dishes, he, he said. And she said, no, I'll do them. And he said, it'll take five minutes and then you won't have to, you know, you won't have to, after I leave, you won't have to do that. And so then she said, I mean, I told him I didn't want him to help. And then he helped anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's that about? <laughs> I said, that's about a guy saying, hey, we both work. We both have important jobs and you don't want to be up till one in the morning. It'll two of us. And, it, and, and he knew that you were saying that because you, you're, you were just saying that he knew he, he wanted to be helpful. And she said, oh, she said, well, I see him more as a friend than I do a lover. And that's because she couldn't see him in a male light. She couldn't see him because I mean, mo- mo- any man she was with who had dinner with her would say, okay, that was great. Thanks. And not clean up anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But we had to go over, we had to go over every little incident and she would portray it as, do you believe he did that? You know, <laughs> I'd have to say, well, that sounds pretty nice to me. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that, and I've tried to remind myself this of this now, like with dating. And I think it's important for adult children to hear if there's a super strong attraction on the very first date, that probably That's means you need to run for the hills, run for the hills. Run for the hills. Exactly right. Cause you're, you're bonding to what was in your family. That is exactly right. Yeah. 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 And like giving them more than one chance, seeing that it can develop. Right. And so I think that's so important if it's like, okay, if they're not like totally awful and disgusting, just, you know, give it three times, see what happens. That's exactly what I say. And she said, he didn't even make a move. How pathetic is that? I said, he's being respectful. (laughs) He's being respectful. He came to your house and, you know, he he said, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to, you know, see how this goes. He's somebody who's into delayed gratification. You've never, ever had a man in your life with delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what was so cool about it was not just that she was able to like work with you to learn new behaviors and do things differently, but that he stuck around through the process. I know, I know. Now, you know, remember there was one time when she came in and she was as white as a sheet. Yep. And I said- and I, I said, what happened? And she said, he said to her that she would, she, he was not going to continue with her until she changed her behavior. Now, this is something all therapists should hear, right? Because I didn't know what she was doing. I only knew what he was doing. She thought she was fine, right? So, and so I said, well, what, what does he think you're doing? She said, well, he got all bent out of shape. Just because I, I opened up a Tupperware and he only put in a table, he'd saved a tablespoon of sauce. So I couldn't even make the spaghetti. So, I mean, you know, I threw it against the wall. I said, you threw it against the wall. And she goes, yeah, come on, you would do that. Too. <laughs> right. I mean, you would do that. So, I mean, she, she did not, she thought that you have to say to a man, you have to be dramatic and say, what are you doing here? What the hell? You know, but that's how she dealt with her dad. Right. Um, and, and so he said, I'm not tolerating this. This is not tolerable. And I, you need to go and talk to somebody about how you behave and about your anger going from zero to, to 10 in a second. So she, we had to work on that, but he, he was pretty together to say, I'm not putting up with that anymore unless you, and then by that time she cared about him. And she had no idea that she was behaving um, irrationally. That's all that she'd ever seen. That's because she, you know, she, her mother was dead and that's what she, that's what she thought she was supposed to do. 
She thought that's how you express displeasure. And then when I said to her, well, you might say, uh, look, um, we can't use this. So there's no point saving a tablespoon. And it gives you the false impression that you have dinner. And she said, and then he said, she said, oh, Dr. Gildener, you know, you wouldn't say that. That's like, that's like leave it to beaver. That's like a TV show. That is so false. Like it rang so untrue to her that she would, she just thought that I was come, uh, that I was being ridiculous. So I'm, you have to go from there to under, to learning new ways of expressing anger. It's hard. No wonder it takes five years. Mm-hmm. I wonder what he thought when he read the book about all of her craziness. Yeah. 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 I know. Well, he comes off pretty well though. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. wonder what he thought. No, I meant like just her and the conversations her. between the two yeah. of you. And... Right. Right. <laughs> uh, so, um, and so where can people find you through your website, the way I found you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I'm going to tell a bunch of, uh, of people that I know, uh, to listen to you, um, because I, cause there's a lot of people I, not a lot, but a number of friends I have and they're old, right? So they don't really get it. They go, Oh, my father drank, but everyone drank back then. You know, everyone had three martinis at lunch. Right. And I want to say you're actually an adult child of an alcoholic. That's what you are. And you have all of the symptoms. So it would be really interesting if they, if they listen to, if they listen to you and cause you're very open and you're very honest about what you've got and you know, and how you're dealing with it. Mm, well, thank you. That's right. a big compliment. So, all right. Well, thank you so right. much. Well, thank you for having me. Better be on your PQ. It's just me, J Rock, so thank you. Solar system and barbecue. Nothing else you can do. Yep, yep. Amen. I killed them. Well, that wraps up today's episode. And I usually say, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own healing journey. But perhaps I should be saying, you're welcome for helping you on your healing journey because there's no way that you could have listened to that interview and not taken something away. Thanks again to Kathy. Check out the show notes for links to her books and ways to contact her. Also, if anyone's interested in doing that book club, hit a girl up. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And I will see you guys next week for another great episode. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. Let it all go. What's making you slow now? Don't let it all go.